The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. I kept seeing these other names coming to the surface, like Bob Feller, Larry Doby, Satchel Page, And I was noticing how these men were sort of complementing each other and were in tension with each other in extremely interesting ways. And I thought that you could tell sort of an alternate story of the integration of Major League Baseball through these four people, because these people, these two white, two black men, each sort of represented a different facet of the integration experience. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we are talking to the author of the new book, Our Team, the epic story of four men and the World Series that changed baseball by Luke Eplin. So excited to talk to Luke Eplin today. Also, I've got some choice words about athletes willing to step on the third rail of the intersection of sports and politics and criticize what Israel is currently doing uh, to the neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah as well as Gaza. Very excited to relay some of this information to you because it actually has the whiff of hope. I've got the Just Stand Up Award, talking about athletes who are going to defy the infamous Rule 50 at the Olympics, and the Just Sit Your Ass Down Award for people who would dare, dare, dare question the greatness of Brody himself, Russell Westbrook. But first, let's go to Luke Eplin. The book, Our Team, The Epic Story of Four Men and the World Series That Changed Baseball. I've got so many questions I want to ask you about this. But first and foremost, you know, you can write about anything in the worldwide, uh, in the wide world of sports. So what drew you to this story? Um, actually, it was a circuitous route to it. Um, I'm from a small town in Illinois near St. Louis. Um, grew up a diehard Cardinal fan with very little knowledge of the Cleveland Indians. Um, but my grandfather was a diehard St. Louis Browns fan. And so this was at a time whenever St. Louis had two Major League Baseball teams. Uh, during the war, he was 4F, and he worked in factories in St. Louis and used to hop streetcars to go watch the Browns. And so I grew up hearing about those teams, even though the Browns left St. Louis in the, the 50s. Um, and so anybody that knows anything about the Browns knows that Bill Beck 
was the last owner of the Browns. He did some of the more notorious stunts that he's still known for as owner of the Browns. Um, and so I really wanted to write about that um, to to go into the Browns. And so that was my intention starting out was to try to tell a larger story about the Browns, largely focusing on Vec. And so I went to the New York Public Library where they have bound copies of the Sporting News, which was a baseball publication through uh, in that time, very prominent. And you can sort of flip through them and read them like a novel. So I was looking at Vex's earlier tenure as the the owner of the Indians from 1946 to 1949 just to get background information. And I kept seeing these other names coming to the surface, like Bob Feller, Larry Doby, Satchel Page. And I was noticing how these men were sort of complementing each other and were in tension with each other in extremely interesting ways. And I thought that you could tell sort of an alternate story of the integration of Major League Baseball through these four people, because these people, these two white, two black men, each sort of represented a different facet of the integration experience. And so that's when I shifted course. Well, we're going to get to more about Bill Vec. I'm really curious about uh, what drew you to his story and to explain to my audience who might not know anything about Bill Vec, about what makes him so intriguing. But before we get to these four incredible character studies that you did for the book, I want to ask you just a little bit about the city of Cleveland. I mean, mm-hmm. today people think of Cleveland as a hard luck city, both in terms of its sports world, LeBron withstanding, and, you know, in the real world, you know, Cleveland is seen as a city that loses residents that has been on tough times for quite a few decades, trying to come back now with more of a tourist service economy. But what was the, what was Cleveland like in 1948? What was the mood of the city? Uh, How is it seen in terms of in the broader country? It was a city on the rise. Uh, It was probably at its apex in 1948. Uh, It had had runaway population growth through the early part of the last century up until the Great Depression as Cleveland sort of established its industrial base um, and sort of rise of natural gas and all these other sorts of industries came into there. Um, and then in the Depression, it, it bled population for the, the, the first time. Its industry was revived by the war. And, and so a lot of sort of particularly uh, uh, black migrants came up from the South to, to work in Cleveland factories and other sorts of things like that. So by the time the war ended, Cleveland had had sort of 10 to 15 years of being a little bit more down on its luck. But the war really revived its industry. And by the time 1948 came, Cleveland was at the peak of its population. It was close to a million residents. There was sort of a sense in Cleveland that this century was going to be theirs, that that they were going to rival maybe not New York City, but some of the larger eastern cities like Boston or Philadelphia. Um, They really thought of themselves as, as being sort of near great uh, metropolitan areas, great waterways, sort of great access to the rest of the country. And so it was a time of extreme optimism within the city. And since residents had been a little bit down on their luck for the last sort of decade or so, it was a city ready to explode. There was all this sort of energy in the city that had been built up from sort of a decade or so of, 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 uh, of downtroddenness. And it was really channeled through baseball, through the Indians, through sports. It was a time of athletic triumph for the city as well. Mm, something that I think would sound very uh, foreign in the, in the generations to come post-1964. Um, you, you look at such storied figures in the book, and I'm going to assume that my audience has some sense who some of these folks are, but maybe not all of them. So 
I, I guess I want to re- really have you situated in 1948. So who was the Satchel Page of 1948? Satchel Page of 1948 was a figure who had entered into American athletic mythology. He uh, had come up through Mobile, Alabama, the Deep South during a time of, of extreme segregation, Jim Crow laws, things like that. And basically over the next sort of two decades, built himself up into what was essentially a one-man franchise. He played for a variety of Negro League teams, teams throughout Latin America, other things like that. But he also just leased his services to clubs that that needed a boost at the gate and uh, became sort of the preeminent barnstormer of his time. He was somebody who, even though particularly during the Depression, Negro Leagues were on, uh, were on sort of dire straits financially often, he was making as much as any major league superstar at that time. And sort of tales of Satchel Paige and his character and his feats just spanned the country and, you know, interestingly enough, racial lines. Um, he was getting attention not only from the black press, as he did sort of weekly at that during his years that he was playing, but he was also getting features in the Saturday Evening Post, Time, other sorts of publications like this. Um but by the time integration came along in the sort of mid 40s, Page was sort of thought to be past his prime. He was entering into his 40s, even though some people thought he was much older than that. There was always sort of speculation about his age. Um, and so there was this idea that even though Satchel Page was recognized as sort of the best pitcher of his time, that integration had come too late for him and that he was not going to be able to get the opportunity to cross over. Mm. And do we know anything about Satchel Page's attitudes about Jackie Robinson, about integration, about Jim Crow? Because you don't often hear about Satchel Page being situated as a political figure in any way. No, um, he was somebody who um, the the later generation of stars like Jackie Robinson and Larry Doby would sort of come to look down on Page because they saw in his sort of character and in the sort of way that he sort of uh, carried himself where he had a very slow walk to the mound. He had a sort of poker face about him. Um, they, they sort of saw a, a maybe a step and fetch it stereotype that they thought played into white perceptions of, uh, of black uh, athletes and performers at that time, and so they would they they would be uncomfortable with Page. But Page himself was fighting Jim Crow in in myriad ways of of his own at this time. He had built himself into such a sort of star in the 1930s that he alone among black athletes said that if you want me to come pitch for your town or your team or wherever, you're going to have to guarantee accommodations, uh, both food and lodging, not only for me, but for my my players that I'm bringing with me. And so he was integrating stadiums across the country. He was challenging Jim Crow laws wherever he went. Um, and he and Jackie Robinson were just from sort of different eras. They, they overlapped a year in the Negro Leagues on the Kansas City Monarchs. Jackie Robinson did not enjoy his time in the Negro Leagues. He found it to be sort of a, a ramshackle uh, league, and he would sort of denigrate it in uh, newspaper articles and magazine articles across uh, across the next few years. And Page really took offense to that. And um, he was not exactly the most complimentary person toward Robinson in his autobiography. Um, he also thought that uh, that because of the sort of ways that he had 
shown white audiences uh, the sort of excellence of, of, of black athletic achievement during that time, that he should have been the one to, to, to cross over despite his age. He, he would say in his autobiography that he was the one who was filling the stadiums, was getting the reporters out, was bringing in the white fans to see Negro League games. So he really thought that that honor of being the first to, 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 to desegregate the major leagues should have been his, and he was really hurt whenever it wasn't. Mm. So this almost possibly older than 50-year-old Satchel Page, what was his game like in 1948? And how had it changed over the years? He had come into the, the Negro Leagues as a, as a young man known for two things, really. His control, which was impeccable. He, had really, he could just place the baseball wherever he wanted to, to place it, and his blinding speed. Um, the combination of those two things were really what sort of made his, his name. But by the time he came into uh, his forties, he still had that impeccable control, but his speed had lessened somewhat. And so he had become a much more cerebral pitcher. He had sort of learned how to study batters, their, their sort of movements, their knees, everything like that to see where their weaknesses were. And then he could place the ball exactly where he wanted to there. And so he still could throw the fast, the, sort of the, the swift ball whenever he needed to, but he was relying a lot more on breaking pitches at that time. Um, there was sort of questions about whether his stamina was, was good enough. He uh, in the night in the mid 1940s, because he was such an attraction, he came to just kind of pitch a couple of innings a game so that he could throw as many games as possible in the in the week, whether for the Kansas City Monarchs or for barnstorming teams. So there were questions about whether he could even go a full nine innings in, in the 40s. And then there was just a lot of questions about, you know, uh, whether he would still be good enough to pitch in the league whenever he did cross over to the Indians. A lot of people thought it was just a stunt that Bill Veck was doing. Uh, Veck was known for his promotions. He was known for putting sort of clowns and performers on the field before games to entertain fans. And a lot of people interpreted Page coming over as just another one of those Veckian stunts. Um, was it on some level a Veckian stunt, or did Bill Veck always believe in Satchel Page as a contributor to the team? It was in no means, uh, it was by no means a Veckian stunt. I mean, I think you have to separate two different things here. One is that, was it a way for Bill Veck to draw crowds? Yes. And Veck was very clear about, about his intention of always wanting to do that. And so Satchel Page's drawing power certainly did not uh, hurt in terms of Veck. But Veck never would have done it if he didn't think that Satchel Page had something to offer. Veck had been watching Satchel Page at least since the early 30s. He saw Page and Dizzy Dean pitch together in barnstorming tours whenever Page was regularly besting them. And he was he was saying as far back as the 30s that he couldn't wait to, 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 to get some sort of team to bring Page onto it. There are legends and that I tend to believe are true that Vec was trying to buy the uh, Philadelphia Phillies in the um, early 1940s, whenever the Phillies were down on their luck club in the National League, and stock its roster with Negro League players, Satchel Page among them. Vec would swear that he tried to do that, and you know he was really targeting Satchel Page at that moment because he believed that a roster stock with Negro League players could challenge Major League players for the pennant. Um, and 1948, whenever Bill Veck brought Page onto the Indians, they were in the middle of one of the tightest pennant races in baseball history at that point. So there was no way Veck was going to jeopardize getting the pennant 
by bringing somebody that was kind of a, a promotion onto the team because that would have certainly hurt them uh, to do that. He brought Page on there because the Indians pitching was thin and particularly because Bob Feller was having uh, Bob Feller, who was the ace of the Indians pitching staff for the, for a dozen years before that was having his worst season of his career. Then the Indians needed uh, reinforcements and so Beck found it in page. Yeah, that gets to my next question about Bob Feller. What do we know about the relationship between page and Bob Feller? And what can you tell us about the Bob Feller of 1948? Page and Bob Feller had a, I would say, a very solid economic or financial relationship. Um, Bob Feller was uh, a sort of phenom of his time. He came from rural Iowa. Um, he had such a sort of ability at an early age that his father cleared off a patch of their farmland and built him a baseball diamond of his own whenever Feller was a an adolescent. It was kind of like a field of dreams sort of thing. And through happenstance, Feller makes the roster of the Indians at age 17 and in his very first start ties the American League record for strikeouts in a game. He is just a phenom. He is, is I, I don't even know if there's been a better origin story in baseball history than the one Bob Feller had. But Feller and Page are tied from the beginning, tied together, that is. Um, it, at age 17, whenever Feller had just made the majors, he comes back to Iowa and Page is sort of barnstorming through that region. And there's this sort of immediate sense by these organizers of these barnstorming tours that, boy, wouldn't it be amazing if we put this young Iowa phenom against Page. So they face off right from the start. And then for the next dozen years, they sort of barnstorm together throughout the country, including in 1946, where they do this sort of massive coast-to-coast -to -coast tour where they're flying across the country, just competing all over the place, facing off against each other every single day. And so it is this sort of... Uh, tight economic relationship that is enriching both of them. Feller's bringing in the white fans, Page is bringing in the black fans, and they're both sort of lining their pockets um, as they go. I don't know how friendly they they were. It was certainly an economic thing. Page at one point did end up suing Feller because he believed that Feller was not giving him the money that they had agreed on. Um, and Feller often sort of denigrated Page to the press, or at least he said that Page and the sort of black stars that were on Page's barnstorming team would not be good enough to go into the major leagues. Feller was very consistent about this throughout um, the 30s and 40s. He would he would barnstorm against these players. He would give them sort of a, a platform so that people could see what these black players could do against white superstars. Uh, but if anyone asked him, well, have you faced anybody that you think could make the majors? Feller consistently said no. Did Feller ever meet mea culpa for that perspective in the 50s, 60s? I mean, he lived a long life. He kind of did with Page. He he would say toward the end of his life that Satchel Page is one of the five greatest pitchers who ever, who ever played baseball. But he always seemed to have this sort of idea that um, – he really believed in these sort of conservative white values of sort of self-reliance, rugged individualism, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. The way that his own sort of story where he sort of goes from the farm to the majors, um, he looked at it through that sort of that prism. And so these sort of obstacles that black players had to sort of 
faced with systemic racism and sort of racial barriers that Feller didn't have to deal with, he almost remained like blind to that sort of thing. And so, um, I mean, even after the Indians won the 1948 World Series uh, through Satchel Paige and Larry Doby, really, I mean, if if those two players hadn't been on the team, the Indians definitely would not have even made it to the World Series. Feller had said immediately afterward to Ebony Magazine that he didn't think that there were more black players in the Negro Leagues that could come up, even though the ones that had come up had been sort of stars. Um, he would even say in the 50s and 60s, uh, similar things about executives whenever people would ask him, well, why aren't there more black managers or black front office executives? And Feller said, well, the talent is just not there yet. And uh, it's it's not because baseball is, is, is sort of uh, prejudiced against them or is systemically racist or anything like that. It's just because the, you know, there, there aren't, there isn't enough of a talent pool there. So it was something that he sort of adhered to through the rest of his life. You know, what about Larry Doby in, in, in your book? Um, I didn't know this. I mean, Larry Doby, for people who don't know, of course, first uh, black American player to play in the American League. But I didn't know he was almost cut before the 1948 season. Yeah, Doby, his story is really phenomenal. Um, it is it is very different than Jackie Robinson's story, where Robinson is signed or the signing is announced in October of 1945. And then he has sort of an 18-month period where he goes to spring training, he goes to the minor leagues, he sort of is allowed to acclimate to the sort of abuses and these all-white clubhouses and all these things that he's going to have to deal with. Dobie was a player for the Newark Eagles. Um, Vec signs him in early July 1947, and within two days— he goes directly from the Eagles onto the Indians. Um, he travels literally overnight from the Negro Leagues to the Major Leagues. And it's a shock to his system. He uh, he is dealing with a clubhouse that has not been prepped for integration. The Indians players find out around the time that Dobie does that, that Dobie will be joining the Indians. Um, a lot of them are either sort of opposed to the idea of integration in general or feel threatened by Dobie's presence, threatened in terms of, will he be taking away playing time from me? Will, uh, will we be getting more black players and thus I'll be losing my roster spot? Things like this sort of fearing a loss of status for, um, uh, integration. And, um, Dobie, Doby is not sort of well mixed into the team in 1947. He rides the bench uh, throughout most of the year, and people just think that he's not anywhere near Major League uh, worthy. Um, he goes into the spring training in 1948 having to learn an entirely new position. He was a second baseman. The Indians want to convert him into an outfielder, and they generally believe that Doby's going to need at least a year in the minor leagues to learn the new position and to sort of see if he is, in fact, Major League Material, but he has such an incredible spring in uh, 1948 that toward the end they're just like you know we can't let this guy go. He's just he's tearing up the pitching, and so it's it's really incredible that Joby even makes the team in 1948. Um, that was not expected. We we've read so much. I mean, entire treatises about Jackie Robinson's personality. Uh, what what it meant for him to suppress his anger at racism, him, you know, expressing that more as his career went on. 
what do we and, and oftentimes that personality that that is assessed in terms of his ability to withstand the racism of breaking the color line what do we know about both larry doby's personality and what he had to face in integrating the american league Doby and Robinson are very different sort of individuals. Robinson ran hot. Doby ran cool. Um, Robinson had been uh, in the national spotlight since his days at UCLA when he was a star halfback. Um, people across sort of black and white America knew him um, or at least had heard his his name. He was not an unknown quantity whenever he was signed to the Brooklyn Dodgers organization. Um, he he was he was somebody who excelled pretty quickly once he made it into uh, the Brooklyn Dodgers organization. I think he had two two months of struggle, and then he really had an extraordinary 1947 season. Um, and the press was was on him uh, quite constantly. He was playing in New York, uh, the media capital of the country. Doby was very different than that. He uh, was completely unknown to white America at that time. He was five years younger than Jackie Robinson at age 23 when he broke through. Um, he was a star player in the Negro Leagues, but was was not well. He did not barnstorm or Satchel Page or anything like that. Uh, people like Bob Feller wouldn't necessarily have known him, even though Feller had faced a lot of uh, Negro League players at that time. And uh, he was somebody who was introverted, quiet. Um, somebody that if, if, if he was facing racial abuse, which he faced since high school would sort of, as his teammates said, kind of go into what they call one of his moods. He would just kind of withdraw. He would burrow within him. He, instead of lashing out, he would burrow in. Um, and he was playing in Cleveland, which was nowhere near as sort of, uh, media friendly as, as, as New York. He got a lot of attention during his first week in the major leagues. And then, I think he had to suffer a lot of the racial abuse uh, in silence. And uh, some of the main things that he went through that that Doby talked about throughout the rest of his life was just this feeling of extreme loneliness and, and isolation. Uh, his teammates were staying and bunking together in, in, in the same hotel on the road. Doby was often shunted into to alternate black accommodations or just didn't have a, a bunkmate at that time. He wasn't going out with his teammates. He felt very alienated in the dugout. Um, it was a sort of loneliness that really sort of dug deep inside of him. In addition to all the sort of racial abuse he was suffering from the fans and from even some of his teammates, um, he, uh, you know, within this first sort of like week in the majors, he lost 10 pounds just sort of based on mm. the stress and the and the, the isolation, and, and plus it was such a shock to his system that he would tell Wendell Smith, the great writer from the Pittsburgh Courier, that every time he would come to the plate, his teeth were chattering and he couldn't stop them. It was, he just hadn't had sort of time to sort of mentally prepare himself for what he was going to go through. And um, yeah, it, it was, it was uh, you know, he, he, he said that the only time he really felt kind of like himself was whenever he was on the field. But in 1947, he was so rarely on the field because he was just on the bench. So it was it was a very hard season. Uh, two questions. D did some people, the Bob Fellers of that time, if you will, um, accuse Bill Veck of even just signing Larry Doby for the for the curiosity purposes? I mean, was that something else that Larry Doby had to deal with? And second question is, um, do you feel like Larry Doby has even close to gotten his due, his recognition, his historical place for what he had to endure? Well, it's that first question. Um, 
Bill Veck bought the team in 1946, bought the Cleveland Indians. And at, during that season, the Indians were in sixth place. They were very far out of the pennant race from basically the start of the season. They had no shot of being in the thick of things by the time Bill Veck bought the team in June of that year. So Veck really took that year of 1946 to just sort of like just empty his ideas box of stunts. He put uh, clowns along the, the the coaching boxes. He had contortionists out in the field. He had literal circus performers come out during uh, the pregames and between innings and things like that. Um, and he really felt that if he integrated the team during that season, it certainly would seem like a stunt because uh, the Indians had no shot at, at getting the pennant. Beck was very adamant that 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 integration be thought of as uh, through not sort of cynical purposes, but through sincere purposes. He really did believe that he was kind of practicing a form of 1940s Moneyball almost, where he wanted mm -hmm. to build the Indians into a contender as quickly as possible. He was limited in the trades he can do and without free agency at that period. He really thought that the sort of place to look for talent was where others weren't looking, and that would be the Negro Leagues. And so signing Dobie for him was was not cynical. He was Dobie was tearing up the Negro Leagues in 1947, hitting over 400, leading the league in home runs. I mean, he was really coming into his own as a superstar. Um, but because he had suffered so greatly in, in, in that 1947 season, a lot of writers assumed that it was a stunt. Some writers even said that, that it was unfair to Dobie himself that this had happened because, you know, he threw him into the major league fire and Dobie wilted under the pressure basically, or at least was assumed to have wilted. And Vec was setting integration back, but, you know, one of the sort of, uh, things that a lot of white players and executives thought were that black players had sort of talent and speed and, and all power and all that, but they thought of them as performers above all, and that whenever they would sort of go into Major League Baseball, they would wilt under the pressure um, and, and prove themselves not to be either sort of capable or ready of being on that stage. And by sort of throwing Dobie into the fire the way that he did, it was almost like a confirmation of that. Uh, stereotype that Bill Beck did. And so it was, it could have been quite damaging um, the way that it was. And Bill Beck himself even admitted after the 1947 season that he should have followed Branch Rickey's model and put Dobie into the minor leagues first, giving him sort of a, a warm up period before he brought him up. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of sort of things like that. And plus, I mean, we haven't even talked about this, but uh, during Dobie's second game with the Cleveland Indians, one of his teammates, Eddie Robinson, literally quit the team. Um, Dobie was going to mm -hmm. take his place at first base. Lou Boudreau, the Cleveland Indians player manager, decided to start Dobie at first base to see what he could do. Eddie Robinson was a struggling rookie on the Indians during that season. He played first base. He was worried uh, about, uh, he was 26. He, this was his shot of making the majors. And he was so upset that Dobie was taking his place that he just announced, I'm off the team. And he refused to dress for that game. And I don't think it's a coincidence that after that, even though Robinson did eventually come back to the team um, and the thing sort of blew over, Lou Boudreau never tried to start Dobie again in 1947, even though he had told the press that he was going to. He was going to see what Dobie could do. And uh, Dobie had a, a hit during that first game that he he started. I mean, it could have been quite different 
if Boudreaux had maybe tried to work Dobie into the lineup, but he saw the sort of tensions and uh, divisions that could happen if he if he sort of pushed the envelope at that time. So Dobie really during that first season only came in as a pinch hitter and Dobie had never been a pinch hitter in his life. So it was, it was quite a difficult thing to adjust to. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think Dobie has become sort of a, almost like an answer to a trivia question, who is the second player uh, in there in, in, in major league baseball. And in some ways I think it's because his narrative has been lost. And so one of the reasons why I really wanted to write the book the way that I did, which was kind of, almost not not necessarily as an academic book, but as more just sort of like you are there, sense the excitement sort mm-hmm. of book, um, was to sort of give a sense of how exciting this was and how improbable Dobie's narrative was, like how incredible it was. Like, I don't think there's any question. I was consciously opening the book with the Bob Feller narrative because that was sort of the quintessential athlete origin story. And then it closes with Larry Dobie's narrative because that is equally as incredible as the Bob Feller narrative, but one has been lost, and I think unfairly, uh, Dobie's has. No, absolutely. Um, and, and and Bill Veck, I mean, he his famous memoir Veck is in wreck is out there, but yeah. he's another person who I feel like has been lost to the winds a little bit, and. We need more of Bill Veck in Major League Baseball today. I mean, they're wrestling with how to make the game more interesting, more exciting. I mean, do, do you agree with that? What's what's your assessment of, of the of Bill Veck, his impact on baseball, and whether we could use more Bill Vecks today? Yeah, Veck is such a fascinating figure. I mean, uh, he is he's somebody who I really hate to use this phrase because I think it's a cliche, but I mean he couldn't think inside the box if he tried. Everything he was thinking was outside of that <laughs> box. I mean, he he was kind of inventing the modern stadium experience out of whole cloth, almost from the time that he's, he starts. He's, he's from Chicago. His dad is an executive with the Chicago Cubs, a very forward-thinking, interesting executive who is putting games on the radio and doing Ladies' Day and things like this. But then Bilvek takes Bilvek Jr., his son, takes things to a, just a different level. He buys the Milwaukee Brewers, and he sort of is inventing this whole sort of idea of, of games being both a combination of competitive play on the field and sort of entertaining almost vaudevillian sideshows before and between innings. And he's doing these crazy promotional giveaways. He's shooting off fireworks. He's doing all these things at the same time that he is just an exceptional baseball mind. Like the Milwaukee Brewers were a terrible team whenever Beck buys them. And he converts them into a championship contender within two years. He does the exact same thing with the Indians through these incredible trades, sort of the signing of these Negro League players, everything like that. He does it with the Indians. He later does it with the White Sox. He is one of the better baseball minds that you can that that you can think of. And of course, he integrates the Indians, which is this great pioneering step. We, re- we remember Beck through these sort of promotions now, but. I think that sort of baseball side of Beck has been lost. But he's also just sort of constantly thinking about ways of either making the game better, more streamlined, or having fans sort of enjoy the fan experience more. He's putting names on the back of uniforms. He's 
using the scoreboard to show replays or to sort of explode whenever there's home runs, like to sort of do all these exciting things. I think that he'd look at the modern game now and see something that is extremely corporatized. I think he'd see his fingerprints all over it. I think that every time that you see somebody shooting T-shirts out of a cannon, you can think of Bill Beck. But he would also say that, like, there's no surprise anymore to any of this. Like, it's the fourth inning. It's the T-shirt cannon inning. It's the fifth inning. It's the cap dance inning or things like this. He did not like that. He wanted fans to sort of not know what they were going to see whenever they came to the game, to sort of be like, what is Bill Beck going to do now? And I think that he would also be someone like, in Beck is in rec, he's talking about a pitch clock. He's worried about the length of games that are happening. He's worried about players that are becoming too corporatized. He's worried about sort of the the lack of sort of colorful personalities in the game. He, You can read Vekas and Rec in his second book, The Hustler's Handbook, and see the exact issues that are facing Major League Baseball that he's talking about then. Like he would be somebody that would not only sort of be talking about these solutions, but would have millions of ideas toward them. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, he, he was somebody who didn't sort of just think about what to do. He he was doing things like every day, every game. It was like he was experimenting and trying to do something. And I think that sort of that sort of almost fly by the seat of your pantsness has been has been lost. OK, this is. Yeah, no kidding. Um, th- This is uh, probably a, a unfair question, but you got Paige Feller, Doby. Vec, who did you enjoy researching the most? Oh, um, I mean, Vec, Dobie, Vec, Page, and Feller basically spent their entire lives telling their own stories. Like the narratives, mm. they, these were men who were almost like their own PR departments. They sort of recognized that their narratives were a form of currency. And they spent their entire lives spinning them, sort of using them for either financial advantage, for sort of press advantage, things like this. It's not a coincidence that all three of those men published more than one autobiography in their lifetime. And so it's not like their lives are unknown, even if those sort of autobiographies maybe aren't as, as read as, as they once were. Um, it's... It's more that they sort of recognize the power of their own stories. Larry Doby never wrote an autobiography. He did not enjoy being interviewed. I think I said that that he almost he seemed to approach interviews as someone would approach settling into a dentist chair. You had to get it over with, but it was not comfortable for him to do so. And he's much harder. He's much harder to crack. Um, but it was really satisfying to sort of go through as much uh, archival material as I could on Dobie and try to piece together um, the sort of beat by beat narratives of his story and, and what, and what he was thinking and all that. I think he is, he is an extremely complex individual that is, is difficult to know. And so I really enjoyed him. And I also enjoyed uh, researching Effa Manley, who uh, uh, is kind of a minor figure that we haven't talked about, but she was the co-owner of the Newark Eagles. And I think one of the most fascinating mm-hmm. figures in baseball history, I had to restrain myself from writing 20 pages about FMA. I mean, she is one of the more fascinating people I've ever come across. Well, fortunately for listeners, just, I believe they're coming out with an HBO movie about FMA. Manley. Oh, Maybe it's showtime, but they're making some kind of cable film about her life. Wow. Um, 
great. I'm not sure if it's a rock or if it's a dramatic series, but I think Effa Manley in the years to come is going to get a lot of shine. I hope so. Just yeah. the grapevine, which would be awesome. And then you, you've been so generous with your time, but I, I got to ask you, because it's so much a part of the book, how did this 1948 team shape the future of the game? Well, they're, they're the, they're the, the Cleveland Indians in 1948 are the first integrated team to win the, the World Series. And as I mentioned, it was the, the tightest pennant race in the American League up until that point. They went into the last few weeks of the season with three teams with identical records, the Red Sox, the Yankees, and the Indians. And so basically every single win counted. And Satchel Page wins six games down the stretch for the Indians, particularly during the, the months where the Indians usually hit a swoon, which was July and August. Larry Doby has a rough start to the season and then turns it around to the extent that he is just a superstar in the making. He hits over 300 that year. Um, and he really sort of proves that he's he's the he's the key to them winning not only regular season, but the world series. He leads the Indians in batting average in the world series. And he shows that if a team sort of integrates their roster and practices patience above all, because a lot of times an owner would have just simply cut Dobie after he had such a uh, poor 1947 season, but practices patience and gives the player room and sort of space to to develop. They could be rewarded tenfold with a superstar in the making and the Indians play the Boston Braves in the world series. And at the end of the world series, the owner of the Braves said, you know, we're just going to have to go into next season with an integrated roster, because if we don't, we're not going to be able to keep up with, with the Indians. They sort of recognize that the reason why they fell short was because of the advantages that the Indians had given themselves that the Braves hadn't. So there's this sort of hope and idealism at the end of 1948 that, that uh, Major League Baseballs are just going to have to sort of open up now. Like Jackie Robinson can no longer be thought of as an exceptional figure that if these teams want to compete with the Indians and the Dodgers, they're going to have to sort of uh, follow their blueprint. And that doesn't quite happen. Um, it's it's kind of a, a, a letdown. Like if you if you read these newspaper articles in 1948, there is this sort of great idealism, not only for the teams, but for Dobie individually. There's this idea that Doby is going to surpass Jackie Robinson now, that things have changed and all this sort of stuff. Doby goes back to Patterson, New Jersey, where he's from, and takes his World Series money and says, well, we finally have enough money to buy a house. And they give him this big parade in Patterson. The mayor gives him a key to the city. He says what an incredible figure he is, how proud they are to have Doby in the town. And then once Doby tries to buy a house, he can't. All the sort of realtors say, sorry, we can't we can't sell to you. People bump up their asking prices. It's just like you're confronted with the same issues as before. And um, going into the 1949 season, no other teams have integrated their rosters at the start of the season. Um, the hope turns out to be sort of a false one. And uh, yeah, it, it, it takes quite a bit longer. It's almost like teams prefer losing than integrating their rosters and so it's 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 almost like a false hope in in a sense i know the american yeah i know that my my subtitle says the world series that changed baseball and i mean it certainly did because they were the first integrated team but in some ways it it, it's it's a story as old as time in this country where you're given a sort of blueprint to to advance 
and uh, teams would just prefer to remain unintegrated than follow that. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's qu- quite the microcosm, yeah. for sure. Uh, I mean, the the book is called Our Team, the Epic Story of Four Men in the World Series that Changed Baseball. Luke Eplin, congratulations. Before you go, I ask this of every guest, what music did you listen to, either while writing the book as a way to just help you write, or maybe as a way to sort of unwind after you were done writing for the day? What music amplified and helped you write this book? Uh, that's funny you should ask that, because I I found that what helped me was to pick a song uh at the beginning of the day, I would lock my internet, but I would sort of put a song up either on YouTube or Spotify before I did so, so that I could only listen to that one song. And then I would literally listen to it for six hours at a time. And just kind of like, almost like this mm. repetition of that song got me into a mood. And often it was Lucinda Williams. I listened to her car wheels on a gravel road um, quite, uh, quite a long time. Um, I was listening to... Um, Radio has let down quite a bit. It had sort of like a mood to it. Um, and I was listening to a lot of um, Tom Waits, uh, particularly from the Rain Dogs album um, at that time. Uh, yeah, and so I know that some people say they can't write whenever there are songs that have lyrics, but I find that if you have a song that you just play sort of on a loop for hours and hours, you just kind of it, it almost gets you, it almost transcends you out of your head. And so that's how I would, how I would do it. Fantastic. I mean, I, I do that with whole albums. I've never done that with songs though. I get the method, but I, I worry if I just did one song, it might drive me to the brink of, <laughs> shall we say, humanity. So, I get but, but I, I like the album on repetition thing. So it sort of just becomes background totally. and integrated into my head. So I, I get that. Work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, congratulations, Luke. I mean, the book's getting a lot of love. It's very deserved. Thanks so much for joining us on the Edge of Sports podcast. Thank you, Dave. It's an honor. We'll be back right after this. But first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important. And The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you got to read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words. As Israel sends air and ground troops into Gaza in violation of international law, more people in the United States, from members of Congress to Jewish American organizations, are speaking out against it. Constituencies whom the Israeli state has traditionally looked to for support are in rebellion. Criticism is also coming from the world of sports. If there has ever been a third rail at the intersection of sports and politics, it has been expressing any kind of solidarity with the Palestinian people that requires criticizing Israel. In 2014, as Israeli forces bombarded Gaza in what was called Operation Protective Edge, NBA All-Star Dwight Howard tweeted, Free Palestine. The outrage was so intense that he took the tweet down and tweeted, Previous tweet was a mistake. 
I have never commented on international politics and never will. This silence is enforced by a bipartisan consensus that Israel has the right to defend itself, even when its military goes on offense, occupying neighborhoods and expelling their residents. Palestinians are never, in the eyes of the U.S., granted that same privilege of the right to defense. Fears of transgressing a political consensus and of being branded as anti-Semitic have bred quietude in the face of violence and occupation. But those days of skittish silence may be done. The brutal evictions of Jerusalem's Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood, the attacks on protesters and the bombardment of Gaza are reported to have killed at least 115 Palestinians, 27 of them children, and eight Israelis. And that's just as of this um, particular uh, reading. I'm sure it's much worse by the time you're hearing this, I'm afraid. These horrors are provoking a response, but they're not the only reason people are speaking out. Among a small group of athletes, connections have been forged between the Black Lives Matter movement and the Palestinian liberation struggle. And these athletes are embracing a new internationalism defined by anti-racism and standing on the side of the oppressed. By my count, several prominent U.S. athletes have posted words of solidarity with the Palestinian people. These include Brooklyn Nets guard Kyrie Irving and Portland Trailblazers guard Damian Lillard, both of whom have been outspoken for racial justice in their own country, and Trailblazers center Yusuf Nurkic. WNBA star Laisha Clarendon has shared messages of solidarity with the Palestinian people. Soccer stars Ziara King and Midge Purse have both shared messages of support on Instagram. The solidarity of U.S. athletes has been narrow, albeit significant. When U.S. athletes speak out, it has global ramifications. This is not only because of the cultural platform, it's also because athletes' resistance reflects to the country and the world, a new reality that the U.S., the main backer of the Israeli state, is far from united in its support. Athletic resistance to Israelis' politics is more pronounced outside the U.S., where not only individual players, but entire teams have been raising their voices. Canadian professional wrestler Sami Zayn has been amplifying the injustice of the Sheikh Jarrah attacks. In 2008, Egyptian soccer icon Mohamed Abu Trika was admonished for lifting his shirt on the pitch, revealing a t-shirt underneath with the words, sympathize with Gaza. He was scolded for bringing politics onto the pitch. This week, he posted a prayer calling for God to watch over both the Palestinian people and the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which the Israeli Defense Forces entered to assault people during prayers. Liverpool superstar forward Mohamed Salah, who is also Egyptian, tweeted, I'm calling on all the world leaders, including on the prime minister of the country that has been my home for the past four years, to do everything in their power to make sure the violence and killing of innocent people stops immediately. Enough is enough. His teammate Sadio Mane posted a photo of Al-Aqsa on Tuesday with the message, Free Palestine. Statements have also come from Leicester City's Turkish defender Kaglar Soyunichu and his teammate Wesley Fofana. Manchester United's Paul Pogba and Russian mixed martial artist legend Khabib Nurmagomedov. Manchester City's Riyad Mahrez, a midfielder from Nigeria, has tweeted a viral post of the Palestinian flag as well with the hashtag Save Sheikh Jarrah. Entire teams have issued statements. The Chilean club Palestino, which was formed by Palestinian immigrants a century ago, saw the entire team wear kafiyas Saturday. Whether more athletes, particularly U.S. athletes, speak out will depend upon how deep the crisis becomes. And as of this writing, the depths have tragically yet to be reached. 
But once silence has been broken, it is very difficult to stifle people back into submission. Speaking out for Palestinians as a principle of social justice could become an integral part of the new anti-racist consciousness among U.S. athletes. If that happens, Benjamin Netanyahu will have no one to blame but himself. Israel's aggression is breeding resistance, and that resistance is being amplified. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now it's time for the part of the show we call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down. The Just Stand Up Award goes to the athletes who are going to defy the infamous Rule 50 at the Olympics in 2021 in Tokyo. Rule 50 states that athletes cannot raise their fist or take a knee on the medal stand. We're also going to see which athletes defy the absolutely ridiculous International Olympic Committee dictate that states you can wear things on your uniform that say things like peace, respect, or inclusion, but you can't use the words Black Lives Matter. Those words have been banned. This is an eye-rolling display of milquetoast corporate liberalism. Now, there are athletes who are going to resist this. I have no doubt about that. And I believe that the IOC has absolutely stepped in it. They've stepped in it because what they've done is they've imbued any protest that does take place with meaning. They've imbued it with risk. They've imbued it with the atmosphere that it will matter if an athlete does protest. In other words, it won't be like it when we would see full NBA teams all take a knee during the anthem and something that was approved by the bosses. It'll be much more like when Colin Kaepernick took a knee and actually risked something and despite his sacrifice certainly changed the world and has no regrets. I believe an athlete is going to say something because when I see Gwen Berry, who's been a guest on this podcast, an Olympic hammer thrower who was raised in Ferguson, Missouri, um, where of course the Black Lives Matter movement truly took off after the police killing of Michael Brown, this is what she said in response to the IOC's dictate. You cannot control what I say, how I fight for what I believe in, because you have not lived my life. You do not have any idea. So you cannot control my narrative and then capitalize off of it based on your control. In addition, Tiana Bartoletta, a U.S. Olympic gold medalist, said, What the IOC has failed to understand is that we weren't asking for permission. We were extending an invitation. It was mostly about, do you see us? We're the talent. We're the people that make your show run. Do you see us? And the answer is, no, we do not. Her words are reminiscent of those of John Carlos, who said, Tell the white people of America and all over the world that if they don't seem to care for the things black people do, they should not go see black people perform. This is huge. And I think the IOC has stepped in its own steaming load of domineering authoritarianism. Because what gives a protest meaning, as I said, is precisely the level of daring and risk that accompanies it. 
And I think the IOC, by raising its own hammer of punishment, has officially imbued any protest at the Tokyo Games with meaning. That can set the stage for a dissent that can make a different level of impact for those who dare. As for consequences, we know what happened in 1968 when John Carlos and Tommy Smith were banned from Olympic Village and made pariahs in the Olympic community. But I always go back to something John Carlos said to me just a couple of years ago. He said, I have no regrets. The people with regrets are those who had a chance to stand up in 1968 but did nothing. No matter the resulting storm, the people who defy the IOC this summer will be the ones without regret in the decades to come. The Just Sit Down Award. Sit your ass down. This will be short and sharp. Uh, it goes to anyone who dragged Washington Wizards guard Russell Westbrook as being over the hill earlier this season. There was a whole podcast, I'm not going to say who did it, that was called The Art of Growing Old Gracefully. And it was advice to Russell Westbrook saying, be like Carmelo Anthony, be like Derrick Rose, be a role player, come off the bench. Well, Russell Westbrook, after he got healthy this year, turned it around and now not only set the all-time record for triple doubles, besting the great Oscar Robertson, but he also has career highs in rebounds and assists. Russell Westbrook, you have said it better than I ever could through your play. All of them can just sit their ass down. And thank you, Russell Westbrook. Other than family and friends, you got me through much of this pandemic just by watching you every game for the Wizards. You make it all interesting. My goodness, the effort that guy puts in on the court. I mean, it powers my entire house. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. My book, The Kaepernick Effect, comes out in four months. Pre-order it, please. That way I can continue to do this podcast. Uh, thank you so much to my producer, David Tigabu. Thank you so much to Luke Eplin. Terrific book. Folks should check it out. For everybody out there listening, wear a mask. Please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.
When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.